0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Graham Redfern. Graham is an environment reporter for The Guardian Australia, and he joined me to preview the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, which is being held in Glasgow. We also discuss the history of Australia's involvement in these climate change talks, as well as its current plans to take to Glasgow a commitment to a net zero by 2050 target. After this interview was aired, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, held a press conference to announce what Australia would formally commit to at Glasgow. Their commitments are essentially unchanged from what we discuss in this interview that Australia will still take to Glasgow our original Paris climate target of a 26-28% reduction in emissions on 2005 levels by 2030, the federal government claims that new projections show that Australia may reduce emissions by 30-35% by 2030. All in all, Australia's 2030 target remains unchanged from the Paris Climate Agreement and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the program Graham Redfern. He is an environment reporter for The Guardian Australia, and we're going to be talking about, well... A whole range of things relating to climate change, especially because the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, is taking place very soon in Glasgow in Scotland. It runs between the 31st of October till the 12th of November, and it really is the most crucial global climate negotiations um, that are undertaken every couple of years. And they really do shift the dial on what the world agrees to and what the world decides they will commit to in terms of emissions reduction and climate action, and it's a a great way to actually coordinate a whole range of policy areas relating to um, new climate technologies, financial investment, and emissions reductions. So we'll be talking about that and, of course, looking at the history of these climate change conferences, particularly Australia's role, and also the present day, where we're at right now in terms of federal politics, and what's been happening between the Liberal Party and the National Party, and the ongoing tension and argy bargy between those two that form the coalition government, and uh, their deliberations around what policy they will be taking and presenting on Australia's behalf at these climate negotiations. So I welcome Graham now. Hi there, Graham, and how are you?
1: I'm good, Amy. How are you? It's all it's all quiet, isn't it, on the climate news front? Not a lot going on.
0: Oh, it's crickets, really, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah, it's it's so crazy busy. COP twenty six in Glasgow, you know, kicks off on Sunday, and and what a crazy few months we've had running into this it's been yeah. really something yeah quite
0: staggering i think and i think a lot of journalists would say that even for the time that they've covered politics this really does feel like a unique moment in time especially domestically yeah it's
1: crucial because this is the biggest cop uh conference of the parties it's the biggest cop really since paris in 2015 of course in, in paris you had all the countries come together, they submitted pledges, they called them NDCs, uh, Nationally Determined Contributions. And when the UN totted up all those NDCs, they knew that uh, while they had an agreement to keep global warming to well below two degrees C, but to aim uh, for one and a half, they, they knew that the actual pledges that countries had put in with these NDCs were oceans away from one and a half degrees or two degrees you know you were looking at something more like three 3.2 degrees of warming so uh, in the space between Paris in 2015 and now you've you've started to hear this pressure from the science pressure from the public and pressure from a few global leaders to say we've got to start now to improve those pledges and that, that was actually written into the Paris agreement and it was one of the only things really For me, and I was in Paris, it was one of the only things that made it credible because we knew there was this huge gap between the pledges and the temperatures that they were going to deliver and what they'd actually signed up for. We knew there was a big gap, but there was this thing called the ratcheting mechanism, the ratchet mechanism. And that was that countries would come back and put in better pledges, better NDCs, improved ones every five years. That, that was designed to sort of create this momentum where you could continue to close that gap and get closer and closer to being well below two degrees C of global warming or, or get closer to one and a half degrees. And, and in Paris, that process starts. And now in Glasgow next week, the hope is um, and the UK government as house hope that countries will come with improved pledges that will start to bring the pledges closer to the aims of the Paris Agreement. So it's it's really crucial.
0: It absolutely sounds like it. And can you jog our memories for those who uh, perhaps have forgotten, what did Australia in particular commit to in 2015 at the Paris Agreement?
1: So we we submitted a pledge to bring our emissions down by between 26 and 28% based on 2005 levels by the year 2030. Now, at the time, uh, the Climate Change Authority was saying, uh, I think the number was, they were saying a fair target was more like 40 to 45%. So our target was already seen as being relatively weak relative to the science. Uh, But that's what we took. Remembering that that target was actually agreed upon uh, by Tony Abbott a climate Mm. science skeptic so we had the target then we we submit that to the united nations we take that to paris paris is agreed the idea of paris is to set up momentum to improve things over time and as i'm talking to you that target is still the same one that we had under tony abbott
0: yeah and i remember that um, there was a lot of pushback against, for example, the Labour Party when they were trying to increase Australia's ambition in their election platform. Uh, and we got a lot of pushback from lobby groups like the Business Council of Australia at the time. But we have since seen a bit of an about face by these kind of major corporate groups like the business council of australia Mm. who've actually um decided to become more progressive than the liberal party and the national party and have decided to push for a much better target by 2030 haven't they
1: yeah so (laughs) the the business council of australia once described a target to improve our our midterm targets there was talk that it should be around a, a 50% cut. And the BCA said they were economy wrecking targets, I think was the phrase that they used. But now they have decided that they're not economy-wrecking targets anymore, that they are they're the targets that Australia should should be looking to to get to. So, yes, there's been a big shift, and there's all sorts of reasons for that shift. Analysts will say. Uh, a lot of that is down to the way that global capital, the money, has moved away from fossil fuels, is looking to distance itself and reduce its exposure to fossil fuels over time. You've got business groups and industry groups, everything from the Minerals Council to, well, where do I, the Minerals Council, you know, <laughs> that's the, the representative of our coal industry saying we need net zero by mid-century so you've got you've got a lot of a, a wide range of business groups pretty much everybody the farm national farmers federation they say net zero by 2050 um, i mean almost everyone is on board except the nationals so yes things have moved uh, certainly public sentiment has moved the big end of town at least based on the things they're willing to say in public have moved And the last person standing on it ended up being the Morrison government
0: absolutely and i um i'll just read out the what the bca was or is now supporting which is a 46 to 50% cut on 2005 levels by 2030 and there has been a lot of discussion about the 2030 target being really critical because mm. just agreeing to a net zero target by 2050 it seems like this lofty, faraway goal, but there's no concrete way of getting there and proving that we're actually going to get there if there isn't a significant commitment to a 2030 target and also the plan to actually demonstrate how we're going to get there. So it's interesting to see that even when we um, hear about these Pronouncements of making great achievements in finally getting the nationals as of recently to agree to a net zero by 2050 target, it's actually not that greater achievement in the scheme of things. Uh, no,
1: it's not. And the main concern is that if you just have a 2050 target, you've got no kind of staging post. You're potentially opening yourself up to sort of getting to 2040, 2045, and then suddenly either having to admit that you failed or make rapid reductions. Now you would expect reductions to be a bit easier as the decades wear on because you the technologies are refined and costs of those technologies start to, start to come down. But the, the, the point is that near-term targets now are what all the governments are talking about in Glasgow. And what the Morrison government is proposing to take is not a new target, but just to communicate where they think they might be by that time. And they think they'll be a little bit ahead of their 26 to 28%. So they're they're proposing to take a projection. And people who have been at these COP meetings over many years, they're saying that that will not go down all that well. The other problem, of course, that we've got is that the Morrison government for a long time has been promising now for about two years It's been saying, we will release what's called a long-term emissions reduction strategy before the next COP in Glasgow, before COP26. Now, that's important because that's your policy. That's how you're going to reduce your emissions over time. And we still haven't seen that. Now, these stories are, are moving really quickly we may eventually see it, but the rumblings appear to be that this will be sort of a recommunication of the government's existing technology pathway or technology roadmap that they've been talking about. So those are just aspirational. Those are things that they want to do, like reducing the cost per tonne of carbon capture and storage, or make it easier and cheaper to be able to measure carbon in soils, for example. I mean, that's not that's not policy. That's just, no. uh, that's, those are aspirational targets. So it feels like we've promised a strategy to the United Nations, to the, the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. We've told them in our submissions previously, in our official submissions, that we will deliver this long-term emissions reduction strategy. And here we are uh, a few days, well, less than a week before the start of the conference. And it's, it's still not out. And it appears to be being developed behind closed doors. I asked uh, some of the major uh, industry groups only about a month ago at the Australian industry group, for example, I asked them whether they'd been consulted on this because we were expecting that the strategy might appear at some point. And they said, no, we haven't, we haven't really heard about it. Now that's that they are Australia's biggest employer group. And they didn't know what was going to be in it now. Most people will say that good policy formation is done, in, you know, in the open, in a consultative way where you talk to stakeholders, you get people on board. Even the Australian oil and gas lobby, API, told me that they hadn't been consulted on the policy either. So it, it's, it feels like things being done uh, behind closed doors, out of sight from the public. And at some point in the next few days, maybe we'll get to see what this strategy looks like.
0: And it's not the first time that this has happened in the Morrison government's approach to policy making because, you know, we even heard Grace Tame had not been consulted on the national strategy to address child abuse and child sexual abuse. So, you know, it's kind of not new, but it is very concerning given how this is not just about a national policy, this is actually about Australia's global reputation and Australia participating as a global citizen on what is mm. and has been deemed to be the most urgent policy challenge of the entire world to to be tackling. So I, I think there's concerns about Australia and our reputation especially given that Scott Morrison was quite reluctant to even be attending this conference to begin with and only recently announced that he would be going.
1: Yeah, Australia has a does not have a great reputation at international climate meetings. Now, the government would argue that that's, that, that reputation is not fair, that they've been a constructive player. But I've been spending a lot of time looking at... Um, and speaking to people that were, have been around COP meetings for the government, uh, and as advocates and campaigners and analysts sort of since the, the late 90s. Uh, and Australia's reputation is not good. Um, and in the previous COP to the Glasgow COP, which was in Madrid, it, Australia was accused of cheating because we were trying to take emissions reductions that uh, had been made in the old agreement, the one that came before Paris that was called the Kyoto Protocol uh, and kind of take those and then move them into our Paris target. We had very weak targets under Kyoto in 1997. We uh, agreed or managed to secure a target that actually allowed us to increase our emissions. So our target was 108%. And then we got a special deal that allowed us to count uh, emissions from land clearing in our, uh, in our accounts, it's all quite complex and it's complicated. But the upshot of that was that by the time Australia, when Australia negotiated in 1997, it knew that most of the target that it was going to offer up to the conference in Kyoto, it had pretty much already met because the year to start counting the emissions was 1990. And from 1990 to 1997, Australia's emissions from land clearing had sort of plummeted from uh, about a third of our emissions to only about 10%. Uh, They gone from, um, I may get these numbers wrong, but uh, it gone from about 190 million tons in 1990 to about 50 million tons in 1997. So we knew that we had already got all those emissions reductions basically through doing nothing and then we got this really generous target and it's why the environment minister of the day robert hill when he returned to australia was sort of was given a standing ovation when he went into cabinet when he returned from japan
0: and you do cover this in your new podcast series um which is just been released And uh, it's going to be coming out an episode daily this week, which is really exciting. It's called Australia v. The Climate, and it's coming out through the full story Guardian Australia podcast on all your podcasting platforms. And the first part, which I've been fortunate to listen to, is called Kyoto, and it does talk about this uh, very complex topic in detail and speak to the key players, including um, those that you've mentioned and it certainly does really highlight to me that Australia does have form, that other countries and, and blocks like the European Union have been mm. pretty upset with us for a very long time, not just in 2019, but, um, you know, as of Kyoto. And you do point out in that podcast that the Australia clause that we've been discussing here was really a surprise that emerged in the last hour Um, of negotiations and was pushed through, really, Australia had decided not to hand out printed copies of this new clause to other delegates. And instead, it was just read into the agreement. And I know I was a little bit surprised that that was the kind of approach that Australia would take on a global stage of something of such significance.
1: Yeah. So we we spoke to um, senior members of the Australian government's delegation for the first episode of Australia versus the climate. And so what we tried to do with the podcast is to find the people that were were there in the room that were involved in the negotiations to tell us uh, in sometimes great detail, exactly how these policies that are still having an effect on Australia's approach to climate. Now, how were they put together? Who, who was consulted? How were these numbers decided upon? The problems that Australia had, as you'll, you, you can hear in episode one in Kyoto, Australia had the Australian team there was having problems with the Australia clause. They couldn't find a form of words to sort of get get it through. They tried a few different ways. And um, the story is that one junior member of the delegation came up with this idea that they should word this clause in a particular way for it to appear that it could apply to every single country when in fact there was, it, it was only relevant to two countries. One was Estonia and the other was Australia. And yes, they um, there were a lot of the other delegations uh, from other countries were unaware of it until it, uh, it was in fact read out by Raul Estrada, the chair of the COP at the time, in kind of about two or three o'clock in the morning on the last night of the meeting. You know, that Australia's push to get that clause still resonates now. I mean, we heard... Only a few days ago, Scott Morrison in Parliament talking about how Australia had met and beaten easily our Kyoto targets. Well, the reason he can say that is because of what happened at that meeting. And that's why that was one incident that we wanted to really get close to and really understand exactly what happened so that we can get a really clear picture of where some of the government's language comes from, where the government's reputation comes from. And yeah, we've got uh, we've got four more episodes that I hope people will enjoy. We've spent I've been working on this for about three months, pretty much full time. Um, done very little else, more than full time actually. I'll say, <laughs> um, yeah. So um, people that, that might listen to the podcast that they'll hear this morning of one of the periods actually when Australia when the Australian government under uh, the the Rudd government at an international level was was really trying hard to first ratify the the Kyoto Protocol that John Howard had refused to ratify, and then to try and sort of push through a deal in Copenhagen. And for anyone that's been following COPS and the climate debate for a, a while, they'll know that, I don't know, do I need a spoiler alert here? That uh, <laughs> Copenhagen had an interesting outcome, let's just say that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Copenhagen is pretty much the one I remember the best because it Mm. was so big and it had been built up by the Labour Party as, you know, this is our moment to play a role on the world stage, to be the middle power, to push things along. They need a bit of a shove. We're going to bring everyone together. And Kevin Rudd and Penny Wong were really out there quite publicly, and specifically Kevin Rudd as well, um, you know, saying this is the greatest moral challenge of our time. Australia is out there and we're ready to play this role. And then obviously, you know, it didn't go the way he had hoped, despite him and Penny Wong's absolute immense efforts to push it the Mm -hmm. other way, you could tell that he was personally very invested, not just professionally. And it came across, I remember, in an interview he did after Copenhagen with Kerry O'Brien on the 7.30 report. And, you know, he got really upset in the questions that were put to him about his, I guess, ineffectiveness at the Copenhagen summit, and he didn't deliver on the things that he had said he would. And I guess he might have even been setting himself up in some way for failure, because I guess you can't actually guarantee that when there are so many different countries in the room with different interests and mm. um, and competing plans, that you're really going to get where you'd like everyone to go.
1: Yeah. Well, if people are interested in that, we... We interviewed Kevin Rudd. We interviewed Penny Wong. We interviewed Connie Hedegaard, who was the the Danish Environment Minister at the time. And we also, interestingly, we talked to an Australian called Andrew Haim, who at the time was working for the United Nations and worked for the the United Nations for many, many years, helping to actually draft these agreements. And uh, so you'll get a really good, rounded understanding of of maybe what went wrong and what Kevin Rudd and, uh, and Penny Wong did. And you can hear from them in great detail about how how that whole experience affected them, the the effort they put in. And then, of course, what happened after that, which is Kevin Rudd had tried to legislate a carbon price, couldn't. That was eventually legislated with the help of um, independents and Greens, eventually legislated yeah. by a Labour under... Julia Gillard. But then uh, pretty much as Kevin Rudd is leaving for Copenhagen, a few days before the Copenhagen COP starts, actually, Malcolm Turnbull loses the leadership of the Liberal Party to Tony Abbott. And within a few years, Tony Abbott beats Julia Gillard. And the sort of world leading climate policy that Australia had for a short period of time, uh, at least that's how it was seen by many you know, comes crashing down. Um, and by the time we get to COP19 in Warsaw in 2013, Tony Abbott is in. And in later episodes of the podcast, we hear how Tony Abbott's election shaped the the cops that came after it.
0: Well, and he also really shifted the way that climate change was discussed in the way that he prosecuted and attacked his opponents Uh, and talked about climate policy and carbon taxes and these really expensive roasts we were going to be having. You know, there was a lot of um, hyperbole really that wasn't really founded in evidence and it Mm. certainly did actually change the way that climate change was discussed and even seen by many, not just politicians but also voters because it just became such a polarising topic.
1: Yeah, the podcast series we we've we tried to kind of give people an idea of what happens at these international meetings, but obviously it's that they are shaped by what happens domestically. Tony Abbott never went to a a, a COP meeting, but the things that he was trying to do in Australia certainly uh, affected what the the government's negotiators were able or were even told to do when they went when they go to these meetings so the two are, are linked mm. um and we're here in the series from our editor lenore taylor who's sort of a i was going to use the word veteran she might not like the word veteran <laughs> but she's she um, highly regarded uh, uh yeah and she she's been to many cop meetings uh she was in kyoto actually uh and i believe she she may have i'm gonna get in trouble here if i get this wrong aren't i I believe she went to the the Rio summit as well in 92 when the convention was originally signed, but Lenore's seen this over a long period and, and she sort of um, she tells us in the series about how it was hard to kind of anticipate how Tony Abbott would weaponize uh, climate change as a policy um, and politicize it. And certainly, you know, that, that happened and it did not, it did not help Australia's reputation internationally. I mean, by the time we get, to, we've already mentioned Paris. By the time we get to Paris, of course, Malcolm Turnbull uh, has won the party leadership and is, has become prime minister. Uh, and you, uh, quite a lot of people, I think, saw saw Malcolm Turnbull as a very different beast when it came to climate policy from uh, from Tony Abbott. And we hear from Malcolm Turnbull in the podcast series as well about his experiences in Paris and and what happened and what happened after that. But all of that period has helped to colour how the world sees Australia uh, as Mm -hmm. as an actor in in climate change policy. And the, the moment when the former treasurer, now Prime Minister Scott Morrison, holds aloft a lump of coal in Parliament has kind of become emblematic of how the world sees Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and also the bushfires over 2019 and 2020 are still etched in so many people's minds, and it did garner mm. a lot of, of international support financially. There was a lot of, you know, people across the world donating to our fire services here, and uh, it certainly was a really big moment in time, um, but it did highlight just how vulnerable Australia was to the effects of climate change and point out that we have a lot to contribute on this topic, especially because we are such a a huge emitter and we are also um, so many of our industries have been fossil fuels based um, and Mm. intensive. So, you know, Australia is no small player in the sense of our significance in our role in combating climate change. So is it any wonder, I guess, that the world would look to us and expect a lot more?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I've written before quite a few times that that really you know australia's got vested interests in this climate debate obviously as many nations do have for a long time australia's i think australian prime ministers have sort of thought that or have seen the country's economic prosperity as being the same as kind of the economic interests of the high emitting industries but also Uh, the other vested interest could and should be that we are starting to see major impacts at at only sort of 1.1, 1.2 degrees of global warming or 1.4 in Australia sort of since pre-industrial. You know, we've had these multiple mass bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef, you know, the world's biggest uh, reef system. We've had these awful bushfire seasons and the Black Summer being the, the most recent and the worst, you know, where you've got cities choking people in cities choking on smoke you have billions of animals being killed or dispersed by by the flames you know entire ecosystems being sort of put at risk and species being being pushed to the brink of extinction and so many of us live by the coast and so sea level rise um and increased storminess is gonna is is gonna affect coastal communities where a lot of us live so we've got you know We've got a lot of vested interest in this debate, and it just depends which side you you want to come down on. And it does appear that um, certainly some of the commentators in our podcast say that that often the, they they say the government has come down on the side of high emitting industries and not on the side of sort of protecting the ecosystems and the people that rely on them. Those ecosystems being healthy.
0: Mm. And before we jump into present day. I just wanted to ask, given that you've spoken on this podcast, yourself and Adam Morton, to a various, like a range of Australian leaders, including many of the former prime ministers like Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull, and obviously Penny Wong having a significant role. Was there anything that struck you about their reflections on how climate change has become or had become almost a leadership problem as well because it seems that all of the leadership changes that we've seen from Rudd to Gillard to Rudd to Abbott to Turnbull to Morrison have often been, at least in public, been driven by divisions over climate change.
1: I mean, you can hear in the, the, the voice of people like Kevin Rudd and Penny Wong and Malcolm Turnbull and Greg Combe, who was climate change minister under Gillard, You can hear in their voices just what an exhausting and testing period of their lives those times were when they're trying to get climate policy up, when they're trying to go to international meetings. And there's the the episode that is out this morning. We hear from Penny Wong reflecting actually on how she found herself in a room during the Copenhagen COP. Which, which was in, in 2009, in, in a room with the world's most powerful people, and she reflects on what those people could have done. And, I, and I, I think what I took away from that is, it just, it really reinforces the idea that what it takes to make good climate policy, ambitious climate policy, with good, strong science targets that are aligned with the science, is it takes political will and I think that maybe that's been an, an ingredient that's not been present all that often in Australian politics when it's come to climate change.
0: That's a great observation. And it brings us to the current issues that we're facing, given that as you've prefaced, Australia needs to take a policy to um, COP26 in Glasgow. Scott Morrison will be leaving the country and flying across this Thursday. So time is you know, of the essence uh, in terms of these negotiations. And we have seen in reporting that there were negotiations between the Liberal Party leaders and also the national leaders who formed this coalition government at a federal level talking about what they would agree to and the nationals outlining that there were demands that they would place on the table in order mm. to get what they thought they needed and wanted in order to support some form of better target or or at least something that's coordinated between the two uh, coalition members. And that appears to have been, as we've mentioned, a target of net zero by 2050, but as we've mentioned, these negotiations and the other negotiations around the long-term emissions reduction strategy are taking place behind closed doors. They're not being prosecuted publicly, and even the National Party has said that they wouldn't really be outlining what they demanded. This may end up coming out anyway, but we do have some reporting as to what seems to have been part of the negotiations including having one of their ministers back in cabinet, their minister, Keith Pitt, who is the Mm. Minister for Resources and Water, who only just recently said in Parliament, quote, find me a solar panel that works in the dark. Um, Mm. And he's, you know, ruffled a lot of feathers with his comments.
1: Last week, when Keith Pitt was asked whether he actually believed in climate change, gave the response, well, the climate has always changed which is unfortunately a, a classic response from a, uh, a climate sort of science denialist or a skeptic or a contrarian or uh, sort of whatever descriptor you want to use. He's a, he's a minister. He's now in cabinet, you know, the announcement that he would be made a cabinet minister was made uh, probably 24 hours or so after, after we heard on Sunday, that the Nationals had had sort of come down on a on an agreement to go ahead with a process that, in principle, would support a pathway to net zero by twenty fifty or some other language with multiple qualifiers in it. But yes, it's been happening behind closed doors. We've been left to speculate on uh, what should be a, a crucial piece of of public policy. We're being left to s- to speculate about what might be in it. There has been some reports, for example, that as well as asking for an extra cabinet minister, which they appear to have got, the nationals have asked for greater leeway in, uh, in being able to increase production in, in rural areas. Now, there's, there's some people concerned already that that equates to greater land clearing, which is sort of ironic, really, because if that is what the nationals are asking for, well, the, the nationals have been claiming that they have been doing, they call it heavy lifting on emissions reductions because, as we've already heard, emissions from land clearing dropped a lot from 1990s to sort of the, the late 90s. They went up a little bit in the years after and then, and then fell again. All of those policies, obviously, are state government policies to try and control land clearing. The first ones didn't really come in that, were effect, that affected uh, land clearing levels until the mid-90s. But it, so it would be it would be ironic uh, if the nationals are being asked to do more of the thing that has actually a- allowed Australia to reduce its emissions probably more greater than any other sector, which in itself would would see emissions go up further from from land clearing if that was the case. But yeah. it's, we should not be in a position, I, I don't think we should not be in a position where we're having to speculate on key parts of government policy. You know, this should have been done months ago, Mm. in my view.
0: Well, I think in many people's views, I mean, it (laughs) feels quite absurd, really. It's hard to believe that this is what's happening. And Laura Tingle has been reporting regularly about these types of leadership and policy vacuums being quite... Unprecedented in the sense of, you know, abdicating responsibility and enabling states to step in in um, areas where federal governments should be taking the lead, and uh, just how reactive policy making has become. Um, And Mm. not even, I guess, just reactive, but it seems that a lot of it is uh, quite threadbare and most of it appears to be uh, focused on headlines. But when you get down to the detail, uh, as you've kind of pointed out there, there are a lot of qualifiers involved and a lot of vagueness around just what will actually be delivered, what the timeline would be, how we would get there. And climate change is the ultimate example of that. We get slogans like technology and not taxes, but we don't really Mm. have a concrete way of how we're going to utilise these technologies. And many of the technologies the government supports aren't ones that are particularly well proven to be effective in combating emissions. So.
1: Yeah, the government would argue, of course, that that's why that they want to invest in those technologies to drive them forward. But the technology, not taxes slogan, if we think that the government has, um, has pledged quite a lot to its low emissions uh, pathway, low emissions technology policy, uh, where where does the government think that the money for that, for those policies and those investments come from? Are they not derived from taxes? I, I think that it's a, um, I think it's a furphy. Mm. Te- technology, not taxes. What they're actually saying is that all the investment to try and reduce emissions will be made by by the taxpayer, not the the companies responsible for the the pollution, the climate pollution. You know, we we have had previous legislated. Uh, carbon pricing laws in Australia, where the principle was that it's the polluter that pays. And now it seems to be it's the taxpayer that pays.
0: And also, one thing that was interesting is that focus on technology like carbon capture and storage, which, you know, even as of last week, when I spoke with Greg Mullins, who is an emergency leader for climate action, you know, he was saying that that really is not it's, it's technology that's shown to be not effective and doesn't have any likelihood of being particularly effective in our plan to combat climate change and and shift our economy to something that is low emissions. So it seems like we need something mm. that's slightly more substantial, something that really does actually completely shift Australia into a new mode of doing things and and our economy giving um stability and and surety to investors and financial uh, groups and businesses in order so that they can make appropriate financial decisions and no doubt that's probably why we've seen those industry groups finally get on board and start trying to push the coalition government in that direction Um, and just finally graham thinking about this cop and obviously Australia is just one player in a very Mm. big ecosystem of countries that are going to all converge in Glasgow. And we're going to also see a number of, you know, thought leaders on climate surrounding the major conference as well. So it is going to be a really big moment. And I know that people are looking to the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, and also the European Union, for example, who are going to be there their leaders will be there um china and russia's leaders have said they won't be there Uh, but what are the other players looking to do do we have signs that they're truly going to be um, i guess holding up their side of the bargain and actually increasing and improving their targets even if countries like australia don't do what uh, others would have hoped
1: yeah there have been several countries that have already come out and said they will resubmit their um, NDCs, those pledges, uh, the near-term pledges to improve them. That's what the the UK government is house are trying to to improve the near-term targets. And the United States, for example, has has put in an improved target, uh, even though President Biden is having problems getting his mega climate bills through over there. A key player will be China. When the first agreement between developed countries uh, was signed in Kyoto in 1997, the biggest emitter was the United States. Now the biggest emitter by by a fair distance is China. A lot of people are saying that if you can get China and the United States to pull each other along, that that will get us uh, a lot closer to uh, a target that could see temperatures kept to well below two degrees and keep kind of that one and a half degrees in sight but already we're seeing statements from scientists in the last 24 hours saying that they're concerned that one and a half degrees is essentially is, is almost now out of reach um, and that Glasgow will really have to come up with something at a late stage in the game to be able to keep that temperature target within reach so there's big hopes There's been mixed reports in the last few days about what people feel is the likelihood of success in Glasgow. You would have hoped that Australia would be going there with a strengthened midterm target and with rhetoric behind it that is ambitious. And the reason it's ambitious is because Australia stands to lose a lot from the impacts from climate change. And The country cannot do it on its own. It needs these big emitters like China and the United States to be playing a really ambitious role in this. But instead, we're having petty, uh, behind-closed-doors arguments uh, between junior coalition partners uh, about whether we should sign on to a mid-century target that everybody else agrees is absolutely necessary. For, For what it's worth, if you remember that that Scott Morrison has been saying for a a long time now that Australia wants to get to net zero as quickly as possible, preferably by 2050. And so the thing that's changed in the last few days is the word preferably has gone. Um, Yeah. I mean, is is that progress?
0: I would say not. Mm. Not really in a meaningful way, is it? Um, And it's not legislated either. So this is still aspirational in a political sense. It's a goal. It's not a hard target or a legislated target.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's been horribly messy, but is of a theme from Mm. Australia when it comes to climate policy.
0: I noted that Senate estimates um, has been going on, and we did even hear a government department today say that seventy-eight countries have increased or pledged a new twenty thirty target for the Glasgow COP twenty-six. So the public service and politicians are well aware of the trajectory of other countries and um, the momentum that is behind it. At Glasgow and what is expected and whether Australia will look like we're actually measuring up. So I guess that is another thing to realise is that uh, this is not news to any politicians and that if we um, head there with just that mid-century target, we are going to be pretty embarrassed, I would say. That's my personal assessment.
1: Yeah, I'm sure the public servants are well aware of what other countries have been pledging. And I guess the point is that We've known for a long time that um, the Morrison government has been reluctant to set more ambitious targets. And even uh, in the last couple of days, who knows? We might get something might pop up. We don't know what's happening behind <laughs> closed doors. We don't know what's on the nationals uh, wish list. So who knows what might pop up? But the, all the noise is that we won't get a, a near-term target, an improvement on the near-term target, And what the government will do is instead communicate what its projections are for where it will be, which is something that it does every year with its emissions projections on a regular basis. A projection is not a a legislated target. It will be interesting to hear how that goes down when Australia and Scott Morrison reach Glasgow.
0: It sure will. And I know that we'll get to find out through the Guardian's coverage, which I'm sure um, everyone will be. Hopefully, checking out on the Guardian Australia's website and all your platforms. And I hope that people do check out the podcast because I just loved the first episode and it has great um audio clips from the literally the past, really jogging my memory, but also these wonderful interviews that you've done and all that copious research you and your colleagues have done. It's just really wonderful, so I hope people do check out. Australia v the climate, which is on the Guardian's full story uh, podcast, and also your excellent reporting, Graham, um, and your wonderful column called Temperature Check as well, which um, they can also find on Guardian Australia. So, thanks so much for taking the time to really look through these issues with such depth and nuance, and I really appreciate your time today.
1: Oh no, thanks, Amy. Thanks, but thanks for all the plugs. <laughs> that's very, that's very nice.
0: Oh, a pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.